here today. I'm Zach, one of the pastors here. We have begun a series in the book of Exodus. Uh, So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to um, open up that app, open up the pages. You can look on the screen. I encourage you to bring your own Bible, though, so you can see where things are at. I want to just prove to you that we're not making this stuff up. Um, Real quick, uh, in light of the prayer time we had focused on um, our our church planting efforts among the nations, um, a lot of you might not know this, but there are two Slack channels, one called Pray North Africa, one called Pray Ecuador. And if you're not in those, it might be cool for you to just add yourself to that channel on Slack. If you don't know what Slack is and you're new here, just turn to someone around you, they'll explain it. Um, But that's a great way to keep informed, and we just want to saturate what we're doing as a church in prayer. Um, and that, those two channels are, are really important for that. So I encourage you to check that out, the, the two channels there, uh, public channels on Slack, and you can just open up and add yourself to those. All right, well, we are in Exodus chapter 3. We got a lot of work to do today. Um, I'm just going to dive right in. So we're going to start in verse 1. So follow along with me, okay? Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So what brings Moses to this place right right now? All right, a lot of time has passed. And so Moses, as we learned last week, he's been on quite the journey in his life, right? First of all, he was sentenced to death as a baby, survived, adopted by the, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, adopted by his daughter, right? And he's taken in and he's raised in the palace of Pharaoh. So he's raised in privilege, extreme wealth. But then he gets in trouble with the law through killing an Egyptian man out of anger. So we see Moses is a deeply flawed and sinful person. And then he, he goes on the run. And so now Moses is a fugitive. And he's on the run and he runs this place called Midian and he's taken in by a family in Midian. And he gets a wife there and has some kids, and he becomes a shepherd. Now, shepherds are a long way from the palace of king of Egypt. Shepherding is not glorious, glamorous work, smelly, dirty work with animals. So he's a long way from the palace of Pharaoh. But Moses is about to find out that the dwelling of the king is not always in palaces, And the true king of the universe oftentimes shows up in unexpected places. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning. Yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. So Moses is a shepherd. He's been shepherding for a while. It's probably not that bizarre to see a bush in a dry Middle Eastern climate, a bush catch on fire. So it is very odd, though, for the bush not to be quickly reduced to ash and be consumed. So he stops to check it out. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see... God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy 
ground. So God calls to Moses, imagine that, and tells him, don't come near, but take your shoes off. Now, even to this day in the Middle East, or when we travel to North Africa on the trips that I've been, um, when you go into, and oftentimes in our culture too, but maybe not as much in our culture, but in the Middle Eastern culture, you take your shoes off when you enter someone's house. It's a sign of respect, a sign of respect for their place of residence, because shoes are associated with being unclean, being dirty, and that makes sense, right? So you, re- so you take off your shoes to recognize someone's house or the place where they are as special. It's respect. Well, that's the reason that God gives Moses. He says, take your shoes off. Why? Because this is a holy place. And that's what holiness kind of means, to be special, to be set apart. God said, this is a unique place all of a sudden right now. Why? Because I'm here. And wherever I am, it's truly special. It's unique. It's different. It's holy, uh, like W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. God is the utmost of what it means to be set apart as special, unique, different, literally holy. There's none like him. He's utterly unique in the universe. He's set apart in his perfection from humans in their sin. So wherever God is, that's the definition of holiness. And those who come near him need to demonstrate that they understand this. And one way for Moses to do that would have been to take off his shoes. Verse 6, God speaks. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So right off the bat, God identifies himself in a specific way. This wasn't random. This wasn't just him making some stuff up to fill the time. This was specific and clear and necessary. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, why would he do that? Think about what we reviewed last week. If you missed last week, you might want to check out the podcast. And just as a, just as a, like a side note, like the podcast is really important because Exodus is going to build on itself, Right? So it's important for us to track with what the author is doing so we can see the storyline. So don't be afraid to just go and download that or, or subscribe to that because it will really help you make sense. You know, if you have to be gone for some reason on a Sunday morning, it will help you make sense of where we are in the story so you're not confused. So last week we reviewed this guy Abraham and what's he all about and why is he important? How did God interact with Abram? Well, like we learned last week, God in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, a pillar text of the whole Bible, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God comes to Abram and makes this glorious global covenant, an agreement based on a loving relationship. I'm going to do some things through you, Abram. God promises, and he promises to use Abram and his whole family, all his hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands and millions of descendants to be a blessing to the whole world. That was the promise. You're going to be a great nation, and you're going to bless the whole world. So when you hear 
God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you should be thinking something very specific, and it's this. God is a God who overcomes impossibilities and keeps his promises. God is a God who overcomes impossibilities and keeps his promises. He wanted Abraham to know that. He wanted Isaac to know that. He wanted Jacob to know that. He wanted, now he wants Moses to know that. He wants us to know that. Now, why would I say that? Because when God came to Abram many centuries before Moses is hearing this, with this massive promise about blessing the whole world through his family, there was a huge problem. Do you remember what that problem was? Sarah can't have kids. Abram's wife, it's impossible for her to have kids. It's a huge roadblock, roadblock to this massive promise right off the bat. Sarah can't have kids. But see, here's the deal. God's promises are never thwarted by human impossibilities. God is really, really good at overcoming impossibilities and keeping his promises. And this is the core of how he identifies himself to Moses. I'm a covenant-keeping God. I'm a God who overcomes all impossibilities and keeps his promises So he wants Moses to know, he wants us to know. When you hear Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, this isn't just random. This is very, very specific, very important. This is who God is, a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, overcoming limitations kind of God. That's who we want right out of the gate. That's who Moses is supposed to understand God is. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. So God says to Moses, the suffering of my people, the suffering of your people, it's not not lost on me. Look look at the verbs in verse 7. This is intimate language. He's seen. He's heard. He knows. He's coming down. He's acutely aware of their suffering. I got a question. I don't know if you guys wrestle with this, but but I do. The question is this. God's people have been in slavery for 400 years. Why did it take so long for this to happen? That's way longer than our nation has existed. Think about us as Americans. God's people were enslaved way longer than this country's existed. Like, why does suffering have to endure for the length of time that it does? For some, it's a lifetime. For some, it's just a few minutes. God doesn't ever really explain to us Or give us precise reasons why sometimes suffering lasts the, way, the, the length that it does. Job in the Bible, he suffered long. He suffered horribly. 
And at the end of the book, he, he cries out to the Lord, why? And God doesn't give him a clear, comfortable answer. Only that he is sovereign. And if he were to attempt to climb into the mind of God, Job's mind would literally explode. And Job realizes that and he humbles himself. Some things are for God and God alone to know. We might not know precisely why suffering might last as long as it does, maybe 400 years, generation after generation after generation, or in your life, in your situation, but we do have enough to know precisely that in the midst of the suffering, God is still good, he is still with us, and that our suffering does not equate to God failing to love us. In fact, this is what makes Christianity so unique from all other religions. God himself suffered for us. God himself suffered for us. So that the longest day of suffering, what would that be? Eternal separation from God. It doesn't have to be. So in this sense, the worst kind of suffering, it's, it's already been dealt with. The wrath of God has been quenched and satisfied in God himself, Jesus, suffering in our place. And this is the evidence alone that even if the darkest day of your suffering, even in the darkest day of your suffering, God still loves you. Even if he doesn't give us like a two plus two equals four kind of logic as to why we suffer. So let that be a comfort to you. So God comes to Moses and he says, I know the days of suffering have been long, but listen, those days are coming, Moses, to a swift close. Take a look, verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Whoa, this is big news. What? This is a big task. And as you can imagine, Moses is not too sure he's up to this calling, right? Verse 11. First point of resistance. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Egypt, sorry, bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? First question. Great question. It's, it's like, Moses, we don't blame you. Like, yeah, it's, it's true. Like, Moses, who, who are you? Yeah, exactly. You're a shepherd, right? See, Moses is quite aware of his inf- insufficiency. It's staring him straight in the face. Like, last he heard, in reference to his relationship to Egypt, he's a wanted man. That's the last he heard. He's a nobody, a fugitive, a shepherd, not exactly the resume of someone who's going to topple the reigning superpower of the day. I want you to notice what God says in response. This is very, very important. Now, listen to what God does not say. He doesn't give Moses a a, a warm, fuzzy, self-esteem pep talk, does he? It wasn't like this. Moses, that's not true. All you have to do is believe in yourself, and all your dreams will come true. Just be true to yourself, Moses, right? You need to watch a few more Disney movies, right? 
Just believe in yourself and you can do it, Moses. Come on, big guy. Go get him, tiger. Just slap him on the rear and send him on his way, right? <laughs> Haven't you read the book, How to Win, Fl- Win Friends and Influence People? Come on, Moses. He didn't say that. What does he say? Verse 12. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I will be with you. See, Moses, the issue is that you're focusing on the wrong thing. The question is not, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, who are you? The question is, who am I? I am the covenant-keeping God. If I can create a world out of nothing, if I can create life in the womb of Sarah, Pharaoh has nothing that can stand against me. So Moses, this has nothing to do with you and everything to do with me. You're focusing on the wrong thing. I will be with you. You know how someone's presence can just kind of help you calm down and have some confidence? So I'm not like super handy around the house. I'm getting a little better in my 40s. Um, but like in the past, super intimidated about doing anything. Because I'm kind of a perfectionist and I want to dive into something and not really be able to finish it and be satisfied with the way it looks Right, so pretty intimidated with around the house kind of stuff. So our house built in the 1940s. Um, our insula- somebody told me a, a, a contractor one told me like the insulation in your house is basically equivalent to like an old dirty blanket. You know what I mean? Like so, I mean it's just the technology back then, 80 years ago. About it's not what it is today. And so as you can imagine, in our house when you go upstairs, it's like 10 degrees colder in the winter or 10 degrees hotter in the summer. We have an insulation problem. So I want to solve this. I talked to my guy, Chase, here at, at church, and he did this insulation stuff all by himself, blew it all through his attic, and it was awesome. Fixed the problem. Great. You just put like a, it's like you put a big like, cap on your house. Well, I'm, I'm still kind of a chicken, and so I want to do this, though. It's not super expensive, and it can really help out a lot. So I have a handyman that helps me. And he comes over, and he's done this before, and he tells me what to do. It's a two-man job. You do this, and I'll do this, he says. And, man, like, I show up on that day to blow the insulation in, and it's like, no problem. I'm filled with confidence. I know what we're going to do. It only took about two hours, and he shows up, and it's all good. Why? Because he knows what he's doing, and he's done it before. And his presence was with me. I knew that our likelihood of success was strong. Because why? Because he was with me. He knows what he's doing. He's done it before. And here's the deal. Moses needs to learn. We need to learn. God knows what he's doing. He's done it before. When God makes a promise, there's no chance of failure. And this is who is with Moses. Same God is with us as well. The, the, The presence of God is everything. Well, Moses isn't done, though. He's got a little more resistance to work through. Let's look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So first question was, Who am I? Great question. Who are you? It's not about who you are. It's who I am. Second question, Who should I say you are? 
Who is this God that I'm representing? Can, can I give them a name? So the assumption here is these people have forgotten who God is. The covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't remember that. It's been 400 years. And they've been enslaved in this pagan context with all these other gods, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses' assumption here, it's hard to say for sure, but Moses' assumption here is that they've forgotten who this God is. They've forgotten who they were. And Moses wants to know how to identify the true God for them. So check out what God says. God says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now this is tough. What in the world does that mean? I am who I am. What? <laughs> if you introduce yourself with, hey, I'm Zach, and you say, I am, I'd be like, uh, right? It's a little bizarre. I am has sent me. Now, these words have been debated for millennia, since, probably since they were uttered first here to Moses. So, so what can we say about this? Well, first thing is, I think God is trying to intentionally be mysterious, Maintaining a sense of mystery upholds his holiness. We can't just bring him down to our level. He's not one of us. He's very different from us. Our minds can't plumb the depths of who God is. So he gives us what we need to know to know him. He didn't tell Moses his name in the sense of detailed, intimate knowledge. That there's a sense of distance preserved. The mystery maintained. Holiness, set-apartness maintained. But here's another way to look at it. The, the, the Hebrew verb that God gives to Moses is just simply the Hebrew verb to be. That's why it's translated I am. So most theologians agree that when God identifies himself as I am, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like tell him I exist. Tell him I exist has sent you. It's not just that I exist, but that I'm self existence. You know what that means? It means I'm not contingent. I exist without owing my existence to anyone or anything. All of us, everything you see is contingent on something else. This chair had a manufacturer. Your existence is first and foremost attributed to your parents, right? But God is saying, I'm the foundation and beginning and end of all existence. I'm the utmost essence of of existence. I'm the ultimate ground of existence. I'm the beginning and end of all that you see that exists. Now, I know that's philosophical and kind of abstract. I think it's mysterious for a reason. But, but if this is, check this out, if this is simp- if simply maybe a little disappointing or slightly disappointing to you, think about it like this. Many centuries later, the I am got way more distinct. See, one day Jesus was talking to the religious leaders of his day, and they were giving him resistance, resistance, resistance. So combative. And they refused to believe in his teaching, the teaching that no one had ever heard the likes of before. They refused to believe in his miracles, the likes of no one had ever seen before. They hated him. They accused him of being possessed by a demon. So Jesus kind of peels back the curtain for him one day. In John chapter 8, you can go home and read about it. And he drops a theological bomb on them. And he says to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Notice that he didn't say, before Abraham was, I was. I mean, that would be outlandish enough, saying that, like, I was before Abraham, and like I'm 2,000 years old or something like that. He didn't say that. But he used the exact same word here that is used in our text for today. And this was not lost on those religious leaders. He was claiming to be God, the same God who showed up in the burning bush to Moses right here in our text and, and what do they do? They immediately pick up stones to kill him because this is the utmost blasphemy and he escapes from them. So how amazing is it, think about this and the privilege you have, that we have more information than Moses about what the I am is, looks like, feels like. I, the I am, the name of God, the person of God is known to us clearly, perfectly, and gloriously in Jesus so if you pick up your Bible and turn to Exodus 3.14, and that seems distinct, don't forget, i got to jump to John chapter 8 and see the description, the beauty of the I am. You want to know the I am? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John on repeat. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is the I am. And God graciously decided to show himself to us beyond this mystery of Exodus 3.14. He's made and known in Jesus. So let's flash back to Moses. Moses didn't have Jesus, but he did get a little more here from God. God didn't just leave him with the I am statement, verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So he repeats his covenant name for Moses. And he says, I want to be remembered this way too. Again, what does this name mean again to those who understand it? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what does that mean? It means a God who overcomes all impossibilities and keeps his promises. See, it's impossible for Abram and Sarah to have kids. It's impossible for Moses to lead all these people out of Egypt without getting killed. It's impossible for Jesus to be born of a virgin. It's impossible for Jesus to be crucified and then rise from the dead. It's impossible for the church to exist and thrive under the dominance of the ancient Roman Empire. It's impossible for the gospel to radiate out into the world for the last 2,000 years. It's, it's impossible for Muslims in North Africa to become Christians. It just doesn't happen, statistically speaking, but it is happening right now. It's impossible to plant churches in scary liberal Madison. That's what they told us. Church planting graveyard. And here we sit, seven and a half years later. See, our God loves to overcome all impossibilities and keep his promises. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So beyond the name of God, Moses now receives more information about what he's supposed to do and say. Verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, he repeats it again, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, 
I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise, God, again, it's a God's promise here, that's no small thing, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hiv- Hiv- uh, Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, again, promise, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, he has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So he just repeats the promise again. They will go out, they will have a land, and be freed from the enslavement of Egypt. Verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. Why? Unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And and, and he says to Moses, you're going to see wonders like you've never seen before. Remember, Moses, it's not your hand. It's going to be my hand. I will do it. I am with you. Remember that? And here's the other thing that's so fascinating. He says it's not that they'll just let you go or permit you to go. They're going to ask you to go. And even beyond that, they're going to say, hey, you want some snacks for the road? Right? You want some stuff to help you on this journey? Make it a little easier? Like, the wrath of God is going to be so severe that they're going to plead with you to get out of here as fast as possible. Again, this sounds like an impossibility, right? But God is a God who loves to overcome all impossibilities in order to keep his promises that give him glory and us profound joy. So that's Exodus 3. This is the call that Moses has received from God. So in closing, let's consider this. How is our call similar to Moses' call? There's a lot of similarities. I don't know if you notice it. First of all, we too have heard God speaking to us. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, he speaks. And he too anticipates that we have a confidence problem. We're acutely aware of our inadequacy. So he assures us with the foundation for the confidence that we can have. Listen to what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That sounds pretty godlike. I've got the authority. Jesus is God. He's the one speaking to us. All authority in the universe, the great I am, is speaking to us again. And what does he want us to do? Well, we too are called to go and to speak. We don't speak to political authorities necessarily. But he calls us to go and make disciples. Look at it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Sound like that promise to Abraham? Blessing to all nations? 
make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But here's the deal, God, that's impossible. How in the world can I make people believe and want to follow Jesus? I can't do that. Can you do that? Can you raise the spiritually dead in Madison? Or in Ecuador or North Africa? Can you do that? But God can do that. And guess what he says next? The same God who assures Moses of his presence assures us. Look at what it says. And behold, like check it out, don't forget, recognize, I am with you. And not just temporally, always to the end. That means to the day I return, to the end of the age. He is with us when we cross the street and seek to show hospitality to neighbors and share our love for Jesus with them. He's with us in our city group serves when we declare and demonstrate, even though it's awkward sometimes, that God's love is alive in us because of the cross and empty tomb. He's with us when we seek to disciple our kids and it's a struggle. He's with us when we have that moment at work when, when we could share our faith and, and we feel the fear of man creeping in. He's with us when we fly in a plane to North Africa and support our team over there trying to make disciples and plant churches. He's with us when we fly in a plane to Ecuador to love and serve the goal of church planting. See, making disciples is always a miracle that's over our head. Like, don't let that be lost on you. Don't get overconfident. Most of us don't struggle with that. But remember that the God who loves to overcome possibilities to keep his promises is the God who is with us. He's still overcoming impossibilities to this day. So Vine family, go in confidence, not in fear, not in resistance. The promise is certain. He will build his church. Nothing can stop it. He will make disciples through us. Nothing can stop it. We will go, he will go before us with his power working mightily in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth that we stand in. Thank you for how you work through Moses, you work through us, and you promise to be with us, never forsake us, and that we can be strong with the strength that only you and you alone can provide. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, amen.